in the back of our house, we have about a half acre of woods, and uh, I think we have a picture there. And uh, I love that about our home, and so uh, many times I'll go out and I'll just kind of walk in the woods and I'll pick up sticks, and when I'm feeling real manly, I'll get out my chainsaw and uh, go to town on a few things. My wife gets really nervous on those days. And uh, I just love being uh, back there. And uh, it was a few weeks ago, I was back in our woods, and I started noticing that there were these little, itty-bitty, tiny trees. And I started thinking to myself, like, how did they get there? Because I didn't plant them. Nobody in my family had planted them, but there were these little tiny trees that had grown and started to sprout. And I realized that what must have happened is that there must have been an acorn or a nut of some kind that fell down, and then all of a sudden it started growing. But the only way those trees were going to be able to continue to develop is if they were good roots underneath it. And so this week I did some uh, looking at root systems. And uh, one thing that I found is that when a tree is first growing, there is something called a taproot. And the taproot dives deep and as deep as it can to find water and moisture. And it's on this quest for water. And every other root that is connected to this tree, all connects to this taproot that actually goes down, trying to find moisture. Without the uh, taproot, the oak tree will never develop deeply. It will never be strong. It will never be established. It will never be able to survive. And so this kind of leads to our big idea this morning, your first fill-in, that you can fill in uh, either on your program or in our JAR app. And it's this. The strength of your roots will determine if you thrive or just survive. That the strength of the root system that is underneath you will determine if you actually thrive in life or you just kind of survive. So my question for you this morning is this, what are you rooted in? When it comes to you and your life, what are you rooted in? I think about the taproot and how it goes down deep to try to find any sense of moisture or water so that the tree can grow. And every day you have opportunities, you have choices, you have decisions to make what you're going to be rooted in, and what is it that you are going to dive deeply to chase. Now today we're beginning a brand new series called Thrive, and over the next six weeks we're going to be looking at a particular book of the Bible in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, called Ephesians. Now what I want to do is kind of give you a little bit of background so you understand what this uh, book is about. Uh, First of all, you need to know that it's Paul who wrote it. Now, Paul uh, was a guy who uh, was crucifying Christians and killing them, and then all of a sudden his life turned around, and he gave his whole life to Christ, and he actually wrote over close to half of the New Testament, and one of the books that he wrote was Ephesians. He wrote this book 
uh, in 60 A.D., and uh, he wrote it from prison. He was in jail for spreading the good news of Jesus, and they didn't want that to happen because it was changing the culture. And so he writes this letter from jail to a church that he started. This church was just a little house church that he started, and then it grew bigger and bigger in multiple houses, and he writes to them around 60 A.D. And the purpose for the whole reason he was writing the letter was to teach the Christians in in Ephesus um, that and today how to live as God intended. His whole purpose for writing this was to be able to let the Ephesians know how they needed to live their life. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on Ephesus. Ephesus was the second largest city in the world at that time. There were 250,000 people that called Ephesus home. The city was greatly influenced by Roman and Greek culture, and there were remnants of it all around that you can still see today. When I was in Greece and Turkey, I saw this place I'm going to show you, the amphitheater that's in Ephesus. And it's no coincidence that this amphitheater was on top of a hill looking down at the city. It was not by accident that that happened. Now, this holds about 25,000 people at that day. So it's kind of like the Lucas Oil Stadium. You know, everything that you wanted to be a part of happened in this particular amphitheater. And they put it on a hill because they wanted everyone to see what the city looked like and what it was about. And Alexander the Great was convinced that as people watched plays, then they could look out and they would see the culture of the day and they would want to be a part of it. And that whole culture that he talked about was called Hellenism. And it spread through the world. You could sit there and you're watching your favorite play, your favorite actors, and in the background then you would see a gymnasium where there were people who were the best athletes in the world working out. Then you would look over here, maybe on the other side, and there was a library where there were people who were studying, and they were the smartest people in the world. There were courtyards where things were beautiful flowers were being grown. And then they had this place called the Agora, which was like this huge open-air flea market. Anyone ever been to Shipshawana? Okay, a few of you. Or a flea market maybe down in Florida? And, I mean, it's like anything and everything you can imagine. And it was like two Ball State football stadiums full of just stuff. Schumann Stadium times two, and that's what Ephesus had. And then they had this huge temple called the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And people would come to be able to see that. And what Alexander... The great was trying to do was he was letting people know it's good that you live in Ephesus and you have all of this culture around you. And I build all of these things so that you won't forget what you're supposed to be. This is kind of how marketing was done in the first century. They didn't have billboards and Internet and all that, but they would build buildings or they would have sculptures or drama or these shopping centers. They have different temples with all kinds of gods, and all of this would attract people. 
And so Paul writes to this small little upstart church where they're meeting in homes, reminding them that in the midst of all of this affluence and all of this power that you are seeing down there, you need to be rooted and you need to be strong and centered in the right thing. And I think Paul would remind us of that kind of thing today. Now, in our culture, we do this similarly as well, but we do it by having companies spend $240 billion a year on advertising and marketing. That's how much they spend. That was with a B, folks. $240 billion marketing and advertising online and on television to let you know what you need and that you've got to have this stuff. And their strategy is consistent. They overpromise and they underdeliver. Companies in the US, $240 billion to try to help you believe what should be true in your life and what should be true about who you are. And obviously, it's working. Which makes me wonder what is it, honestly? If we're honest with ourselves, are we choosing to be rooted in? What are we diving down deep to claim as our identity? What's the primary voice that tells us that we're good, that we're okay, that we're worth something, that you matter, that at the core of who you are, what are you rooted in? There's a great book by Barry Schwartz. It's called The uh, Paradox Choice. And he talks about the importance of choice and how it's kind of changed over time. He tells the story that in the 1930s, if you wanted to buy a pair of blue jeans, you would walk up to the counter and uh, they would say, how can I help you? And you'd say, I would like some jeans. And they would say, okay, what's your size? And you'd say 34, 32. And uh, they'd say, okay. And they'd turn around They would get that off of the shelf. They'd bring it back to you and say, here you go. You would take it. You'd pay your money and you walked out the door. Tried to do that today. It doesn't happen that way. You walk into a store and uh, you say, hey, uh, I'm looking for some jeans. And they're like, okay, well, what's your size? And you say 34, 32. And then they say, well, do you want skinny fit or do you want slim fit? Do you want to be, uh, do you want to have them tapered at the bottom or do you want a carpenter fit? Do you want old fashioned or do you want the classic? And then what color do you want? Do you actually want blue or do you want kind of acid wash or do you want neon green? Do you want black? What kind of graffiti would you like to have on your jeans? Like all these choices are coming and then this is my favorite. Would you like some holes in your jeans? Like, wouldn't you like to have that job at the jean company? The jeans are coming by, they're perfect jeans, and you're just going to rip up all kinds of stuff. That's your job. I mean, people sometimes walk through, and they have more skin showing than they have what their jeans are. Now, uh, this whole jean thing has been overwhelming for me, too. That's why I read the book, trying to get some therapy from it. And so uh, my, my wife, she's the one who chooses 
my jeans that I wear. So if you don't like what I'm wearing right now, blame her. Don't blame me. But the reason is she has so much more style than I'll ever have in my life. And um, the last time I went to buy jeans, I almost had a panic attack. Because when I walked in, I just said, I want 34, 32 jeans. And then like this bombardment of questions. And I just looked at them and said, 34, 32, I don't care what it is. You know, just bring it to me. Folks, the reason that companies spend so much money on advertising and marketing is because they know you're going to get there and they're going to ask their questions. But one day, you'll choose to go shopping probably because you kind of have this kind of emotional moment. And when we get emotional sometimes, we shop emotionally. Have you ever purchased something because you wanted a quick boast or just to make yourself feel better? Mass confession. How many of you have ever done that before? Okay. Put your hands up. Okay. Now put your hands down. The people who didn't raise their hands, what do we call them? That's right. They're liars. Because every single person here has had an emotional experience sometime and you went out and you bought something. It might have been clothes, it could be your favorite hobby, it could be food, whatever it is, and you bought it and then you got home and you're like, it didn't really satisfy my emotional struggle that I had. Let me ask you this morning, what are you rooted in? When it comes down to your life, what are you rooted in? Anyone notice all of the uh, new storage companies that have uh, purchased buildings and started building those here in town? Anybody see those? I mean, like, if you go over uh, towards some of the hotels, there's already like two or three of them. They're right there. And uh, I found out by looking at a study this week that uh, UCLA did this study, and they studied people who had garages. And three out of four families that had garages were not using the garages what they were meant to be for, which was your car. You know what three out of four families are using their garages for? Boxes of stuff. You don't park your cars there. There's just stuff everywhere. Three out of four homes that have a garage attached to it. Now, uh... I want you to know that one of the pet peeves I have is if I have a car, it's going in the garage, so Jen will throw stuff out, you know, whatever, but it's got to be in there. So both of our cars uh, fit in our garage, and uh, I've been proud of that, but then Jen's job changed, and we didn't have enough storage because we had too much stuff everywhere else. So we went out and bought a storage unit for her books and her stuff. But then all of a sudden we're like, oh, we have a little bit more stuff we can put in there. And so we put that stuff in. And we've done this for three years almost now. And I, we've had to take out a loan to pay for this thing. And two weeks ago, some friends of ours here in the church, they actually bought some storage uh, units. And they said, we'll give it to you for free. And I'd love to tell you that we said, no, 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 we're going to downsize. But we actually said, Sure, how much space do we get? Folks, there's just something that we have to ask ourselves is what is it that we're rooted in? 
I, I read this week that the storage industry is a $38 billion business. $38 billion we spend just for somebody else to store our stuff that we can't keep in our house. And the reason we do this is because the world markets and positions us and persuades us to say, you don't have enough, you need a little bit more. And it's such a difficult word, isn't it, that word enough. Because the culture tells us more, 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 and what's really hard is say, I got enough. Um, In fact, I know it's going to be painful for some of you, but we're going to practice this right now, okay? I just want you to say, enough, okay? One, two, three. Enough. I have what? I have enough. I have enough. We are consistently told and sold a bunch of lies that we desperately need something more so that we become and look differently. And it is an image of somebody that we honestly were never truly meant to actually be. Folks, I want you to know that there is big, big business Billions of dollars that are spent trying to form your identity. E.E. Cummings, the great poet, had a high school student that wrote him about what it meant to be somebody and what he should look forward to. And so he wrote back to him, and this is what he said. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to to make you like everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. Folks, there's a struggle. There's this fight to be nobody but yourself. But the reality is, is the world that's, is saying that's not enough so you should look like everybody else. Well, Paul knew the only way for the church in Ephesus to actually thrive was that they had to fight with every fiber in their being as a Christ follower to know who they were rooted in, to stay rooted and established in the right thing. Now, the place where Ephesus was located, I said earlier, was run by the Romans and the Greeks. And in that culture, the thing that they worshipped the most was the human body. They were infatuated with everything that was connected to the human body. They worshipped it. There were these sculptures all over the city of perfect human bodies, the ideal body. And artists would sculpt these and they would put them in temples and they were always the body of a world-class athlete. Greek culture believed that gods, though, actually um, were, had to have some kind of human kind of connection, some form. And so in all of these places of worship, it might be a God who was the God of the sun, but there would be a a painting or a picture of it that showed this amazing human being. And if your temples are filled with all of these sculptures of athletic, strong, toned human forms, what you're saying to every person who walks into that particular temple is, that you better look like this. This is the goal. This is the ideal. Now, we do this in our own culture. 
If you've ever gone to Walmart or Meyer before, when you get out, when you get in the checkout line and you're getting ready uh, to purchase all your items, if you look, there are always magazines there, aren't they? Now, they're not magazines of people like you and me, just common people. But they're magazines of what kind of people? Famous, celebrities. And every time you walk down, what these magazines are saying is that you should look like this. This should be your goal. This should be your ideal. For the Ephesians, there was an underlining pressure that you do whatever it takes to look like that body, to be perfect. But if a culture is built on a certain ideal, what happens if your body doesn't look like that? What happens if it's not, or you cannot meet that expectation? I mean, in a Greek culture, if your body didn't meet that particular ideal, you were pushed away to the fringes of society. Can you imagine the shame and the pain and the neglect that people must have felt when they walk through Ephesus and they see these sculptures of perfect bodies and they know that they're not like that. I wonder if any of you have ever felt like you're on the fringes. That you've been neglected, abandoned. Felt like you had pain and neglect and shame because of you. Now in Ephesus, the problem was that not only would you be excluded, but the whole family unit would be excused. I mean, if there was a child that you had and the child was deformed or disfigured or handicapped in any way, the Romans actually practiced a law called exposing, where you would actually take a child. This was legal. If the child didn't look exactly right, if it was deformed in some way, you could take it outside the kind of city gates walk up to the top of a mountain and take the deformed child and just throw it on the heap of the other deformed child, exposing it to the elements, and then you could leave. It's one of the reasons why Ephesians uh, never actually, people in Ephesus never named their child until day eight because the parents wanted to see whether or not this child, if he or she, were actually worth keeping. You'd look at the body parts and try to see if everything was perfect and good and could it maybe be an athlete at some point. But if the child was not good enough and it was deformed in any way, they would walk outside the city, walk up the mountain, and then just expose the child to the elements until it would actually die. There's a uh, young man in our neighborhood who um, has uh, who has um, um, sorry who has Down syndrome, and he has Down syndrome. He lives just down the road uh, from us, and uh, each day he either takes the MITS bus or he takes the reliable transit bus, and he gets on this bus and he waves goodbye to his dad and mom. And he goes to Hillcroft 
where other handicapped people come together and they work and they have a productive kind of day. Now, each time that our family uh, takes a walk or we ride in the car or uh, we ride our bicycles and he's out there, he's always out there like waving at us. He's like, hi, hi, hi. And we always wave back at him and it's great. And his dad and I be, began to begin a pretty good relationship. Uh, in our neighborhood, there's a cul-de-sac with uh, two uh grates where the water is supposed to go when it rains and they get clogged with leaves and no one else in the neighborhood except he or I think it's a problem that, you know, our cul-de-sac would get flooded. Everybody else thinks that someone else does it, but he and I do. And we go out there and we get that and I've learned to know him and I've learned to know about his son. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving by their house and uh, he, he and his son were putting out this sign in the yard that says, have a great day, neighbor. And as I'm driving by, he's like waving at me. He's like, hi. And I waved back at him and I kept driving. And I'd been doing some research for this series and I thought to myself, if he was in Ephesus, he would have been walked outside the city gates he would have been taken up to a mountain and he would have been exposed to the elements. And he would have never worked. He would have never put out that sign. And he would have never played. Because no one would have ever seen him as God's child. They would have seen him as simply someone to be exposed, to be gotten rid of. Now another thing you have to understand is that if you struggled with getting pregnant, if getting pregnant was difficult for you and your spouse, what you would do, and it was actually legal, is you could leave from Ephesus and you would walk outside the city court or the city gates and you would actually walk up to the mountain where all of these exposed children were just thrown, and if you could find one that was alive that you wanted, you could just actually take it. Now, at first, when I was reading some of the commentary on that, it's like, oh, well, this sounds like a good thing. It's almost like an adoption, these kids that were thrown away. But this is what would happen in Ephesus, is that if you owned a brothel, who do you think you're going to use for all your prostitutes? All the kids that were exposed on top that weren't perfect. And if you had a whole bunch of fields that needed to be worked and you needed some slaves, you didn't use your own family. You went up there on top of the mountain to the exposed kids and that's where it came from. And Ephesus then actually became the slave capital of the first century. You see, I told you earlier about the Agora that huge kind of open market, two football stadiums, well, that's where the slaves would be sold that were taken from the top of the mountain to be able to do that. And one of the underlying spiritual strongholds that was in Ephesus during this time was that it was a culture that if there was anything that was deformed, anything dejected, it, would to, it was supposed to be discarded, removed, dehumanized, devalued. So in the face of this kind of culture, 
Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, the second largest city, and it becomes, he says, it should be a hope for the city. It should be a city on a hill, a light that exposes hope. And as Paul writes this, he writes it to all kinds of people, married people, single people, people who are masters, people who are slaves. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4, Paul kind of describes what God believes is true about every single human being in Ephesus, but in the entire world. And this is what he said. Paul writes, Even before he, that is God, made the world, God loved us and, what's the next two words? He actually chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. In other words, there's no deformity. He didn't create anything that was deformed. God decided in advance to what? What's the word? Adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Christ Jesus. This is what He wanted to do and it gave Him what kind of pleasure? Great pleasure, yeah. When God created you, when God created me, when God created anybody, it didn't just give him pleasure, it actually gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us. What Paul is saying is what God did is he walked outside the city gates. He walked up to the mountain where we were exposed to all of our sin. And he took us and said, no, you are chosen. You are adopted. You are loved. And there are no strings attached. Now, reality check for everyone here. There is no such thing as a perfect person. Okay, There are no perfect people. In fact, I'm going to give you an exercise right now. I'd like you to look at the person beside you for a second. Just look at the person beside you. Go ahead, look at them. Okay, now this person looks like they have it all together, don't they? Right? Guess what? They don't. And this is why I know. I'm a pastor, and they come and they tell me things. And sometimes I look at them and I'm like, whoa, okay? And this person has done things, they have said things, they have thought things that would shock you. And guess what? The guy who's talking to you right now has done things and said things and has thought things that would shock you. And yet we pretend somehow that we're perfect and we're trying to follow this game And we're trying to hide and act like we have it all together because we're fearful, because the culture tells us that if someone really knew exactly what we were like, if they saw our past, if they knew that, they would judge us, they would run away, we'd be alone, we'd be condemned. But God has set His grace upon us to set us free He walked out of the city gates. He walked up the mountain. And He chose us and adopted us even in the midst of our sin. But, 
What if you grew up in Ephesus? I mean, it must have been so exhausting for those people to walk through their city and they see all of these perfectly sculptured gods and beings and saying, I'm not that, I'm not that. I can't do the impossible perfection. What if your flaws weren't so hidden and people could see it? And what if you were interested in things of God, things high, but every time you walked in the temple, the God looked so perfect and the God was removed. That God was disconnected. Don't you think this would mess up their view of who the one true God is? But then can you imagine that you're sitting in a small little house and you get this letter from Paul and he writes to you and he says, God chose you. God chose you. God chose you. God chose you. And he adopted you to be a part of his family. You know, that word adoption is an interesting word. It uh, actually uh, means to place anew. In other words, God chose you. He adopted you. He placed anew in you so that you could be a part of his family. He adopted you. He chose you. The Greek gods, they might have neglected you. They may have ignored you. But God says, no, I adopted you. You know, Adoption is something that we still uh, talk about a lot today. Like my older brother and sister, they were both adopted. And I was just reading a uh, statistic this week that if 7% of all Christians adopted orphans, we'd have no orphans in the world. Think about that. Just 7% of Christ followers, if they adopted wanted children, there would be no orphans. My wife and I have uh, two great uh, friends of ours that live in Pennsylvania. And what's really cool, their names are Todd and Laura. And what's really cool is that they have the exact same jobs that we have. So Todd's a pastor and Laura's a doctor. And uh, they're not nearly as messed up as we are. But, uh, you know, it's good to kind of relate to them anyway. And uh, when... Jordan was born uh, 12 years ago. Uh, they decided that they wanted children too, but they were going to adopt some children. And so uh, they looked around and they got a couple of foster kids. And the mom was a prostitute and a drug addict who had been in and out of prison their whole time. She didn't know who the fathers were, and neither one of these two girls uh, knew anything different. They had never stayed in a home for one entire year their whole life. They were ages 9 and 5 at that time, and they had been in and out of foster care their entire existence. And through a whole series of kind of God-driven events, their biological mom gave up her parental rights, and Todd and Laura took them as foster kids, and eventually adopted them as their own children. Now, when they adopted them, they asked the kids, uh, would you like to change your names? And they both were really excited. They're like, yeah, we want a new name because we have a new mom. We have a new dad. And uh, they named these two kids. The oldest was named Anna, and the youngest was named Naomi, or is named Naomi. 
And again, I was thinking about Ephesus. And these two little girls would have been taken out of the city gates and they would have been taken up to the mountains and they would have been exposed and left to the elements. They would have been abandoned, neglected, discarded. My question for you, have you ever felt abandoned? Have you ever felt neglected? Have you ever felt discarded? Have you ever received the message, you don't measure up, you're not quite enough, you're not good enough, you're not wanted. And Paul paints this picture in Ephesus that the cross is proof that God opened up his arms as wide as he could through his son to adopt everyone who would choose to be a part of his family. That this God is a great God who loves to give great love and He adopts and He chooses anyone who, to be a part of His family. You know, my two uh, friends, Todd and Laura, who adopted their daughters, I said the oldest one was named Anna. And you know what the name Anna means? Beautiful. And the name Naomi means the pleasant one. And I was just thinking about it. That for Anna and Naomi, Todd and Laura had the ability to choose their kids. Jennifer and I were given our kids. But Todd and Laura had the opportunity to choose their kids. And when they chose them, they said, your name will be beautiful. And your name will be the pleasant one. And folks, that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus left the city gates and He walked up a mountain and He took the exposing sins of our life and He said, I'll wipe them clean. And He says, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, I adopt you into my family. And so the question becomes, how do we get rooted in that kind of love? How do we do it? Well, the scripture, here's, our, here's your take-home point. How can I be rooted in God's love? To rest in God's presence daily. That if you want to be rooted in His love, you rest in His presence daily. Now, how do you do that? Well, it doesn't mean you have to be in a room all by yourself for five hours. It just means that for 10 or 15 minutes, you pull up your favorite chair, you turn off the noise around you, and you simply try to be present with God. Maybe you read a scripture, something that allows you to direct your mind on who your identity is because the world is coming in trying to tell you something different. And I was thinking about it, maybe for some of you, a great passage that you could use for this time would be in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. And Paul writes these words, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of Christ truly is. Folks, when you rest in God's presence, you pull away that 10 to 15 minutes and you simply remind yourself 
of who you are and your identity is in him, not in what you've done or haven't done. Because Paul says this, he's very clear. He says these words, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Let me ask you something. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? You are God's adopted son. You are God's adopted daughter. And your heavenly father calls you to rest in his presence, in his love, and then to reflect his love to the world. You know, it all goes back to kind of our big idea. The strength of your roots will determine, folks, it really does, whether you thrive in this life and you walk through life with peace and joy, even when the circumstances aren't great, or you just kind of survive. The truth is that God sent His one and only Son to walk out the city gate to walk up to a mountain. And when we were exposed in all of our sin and filth and all the things you've ever done wrong in your life, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ Himself, bent down from the cross and said, I forgive them, I love them. And God says, I choose you, I adopt you today. When you walked in today in your program, each one of you received a certificate that looks like this. I'd like you to pull it out for a second. And if you didn't get one, this is kind of important, so don't be ashamed, but just raise your hand. We have some greeters back here and up in the balcony as well. Just raise your hand. They'll get one to you. Just raise your hand real quick, and they'll uh, bring those uh, to you real quick. And uh, do we have some in the balcony? Someone there? There'll be someone there shortly. And so what I'd like you to do is to take a moment to decide if today is the day that you really want to be adopted by God, that you want to be a part of his family. I had a guy in the first celebration. He's six foot four, really tall guy. A year ago, a relationship in his life totally crashed. And he's just been trying to do life. And he walked up this morning, and I was standing right here. And he said, you know what? I'm ready to be adopted. And I just wonder for some of you, maybe today is the day that you would make a commitment to choose. I want to be adopted into God's family. I'm choosing to survive, not just this world, but I want to thrive So what I'm going to do is I want to give you a moment right now that whether it's your first time or you've already accepted Christ, but you need to put your name here to say, you know what, I'm adopted into God's family today. You can do that. Uh, A couple of months ago, I was reminded that years and years ago, I had this illustration and I got this framed and it's on my wall. And I was like, we got to do that again. To remind ourselves who we are and what our identity is. So right now we're going to bring down the lights. 
And uh, I want to lead us in a prayer. And then after that, the band's going to close us in one of my favorite songs, Good, Good Father. And today, if you're ready after you say this prayer, you're like, I'm in. I'm going to be standing right here and would love to pray just a way of congratulating you and giving you maybe a Bible to get on your path as you begin a road of realizing that God went outside the city gates. He walked up the mountain and he chose me and adopted me into his family. And if you're like, I don't know if I want to do that, I'm telling you it's the best decision you can make. So let's pray right now and I'll invite you to stand for our closing Well, God, we uh, thank you so much that you adopted us. That we are not simply individuals who walk through this life without a purpose or without a plan. But that you chose us and you adopted us for good things. So God, right now for some of us, this will be the first time that we ever pray this prayer. But we don't pray it alone. We always pray in community. For others of us, this is a prayer where we're making a commitment to recommit our life to you, that we want to be your adopted sons and daughters. So if you would, I invite you to simply repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I receive you today as your adopted child. I turn away from my sin and I turn towards you. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Thank you for asking me to be in your family. I belong to you. I choose you. And I trust you with all my life. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand. And this is a song of reminding ourselves who our good, good father is. And that we are his adopted child. And if after this you'd like to come down for prayer, I'll be standing right here. We'd love to pray with anyone. Today is baptism. So if today's your day where you're like, man, I need to get dunked. I need to take that next step to be baptized. We'll be back there. But if today's the first time where you kind of wrote your name, I'll be right down here. and would love to kind of just celebrate you with that. Let's see.